Hi, Anson. It's Michael Waits. Hi, Michael. Great to be with you. Yeah, so I owe you a public apology. I think you do. I do, though, don't <laughs> I? I mean, how many times have we tried to do this and how many times have I not been available? <laughs> well, I'm going to say I was beginning to think that you were an imaginary friend. <laughs> but not even even a, not even a friend right, just an imaginary a of times that that i thought i was having a call with you <laughs> right. let's just call it an imaginary fill in the blank let's use let's do that we'll do that we'll do that but anyway listen great to be with you um and and, and appreciate um you running these uh asia wide podcasts it's so important to talk about technology and innovation yeah, look, I think it's really important, and I appreciate the fact that you kind of introduced that. You've been at this for a while as well, right, in just kind of a different medium. And I really, maybe just as a way of introduction, you can run through what you've been doing for the past 20 years. And then in that context, well, it's important, right, because in that context, then we can have a much deeper discussion about what that means, everything from just deep tech to artificial intelligence to the types of things you're doing both in Hong Kong and in China – and I think from a tech perspective, people will be super interested in that. Okay, Michael, I think that's a good point. I, um, I actually am originally uh, from the northwest of England, nice. a little village outside of Manchester. I decided to go and seek my fame and fortune uh, literally 26 plus years ago, wow. um, where I decided that Asia, Asia Pacific was the place to be. Uh, obviously, I had a, lot of, a great deal of foresight in, in those days. Um, and I decided that I was going to go and travel the region, which I did do. Uh, I spent two years bumming around the region, had a great time, uh, but then I realized I had to find a proper job, um, and I uh, came over to Hong Kong, um, but I'd worked across um, Asia Pacific, traveled across Asia Pacific, I should say, um, and then I uh, worked for one of the big oil majors, um, and then I went into professional services, Michael. And I think this is interesting because um, I worked um, for a, a forensic accounting firm to begin with wow. uh, across the region. Um, and obviously, there was a lots of work in the forensic area. Uh, but then I came on board and joined KPMG uh, nearly oh, 20 years ago or 19 over 19 years ago now right uh, and i actually joined them uh, here in hong kong and that begun uh, a very fascinating i think journey um around the region when i joined kpmg uh, here in hong kong i think we had about 850 people right and today across kpmg china we're over 12,000 people just oh, to kind of i was gonna give say you idea. um we of course used to do all those good old traditional auditing and tax type of projects. Um, but things have changed, I would say, very radically um, in the last uh, few years, and particularly in the fact that today uh, at KPMG, um, we have teams of data scientists and we really do look at data analytics. But equally, you know, we're having discussions around AI and machine learning. Um, we're having discussions around the impact of robotics and, uh, and automation. Um, we are equally talking about RP, you know, the RPA side of the business and right. the robotic process automation. So, so what's really, I think, been very interesting here, Michael, is that certainly in the last couple of years, 
we've seen the dialogue with our own customers uh, change a great deal. And of course, we used to talk about all those exciting IFRS accounting standards. <laughs> the reality is, Michael, today, our clients really do want to talk about the impact of e-commerce. They want to talk about what are they going to do in this new you know, Internet of Things world? Um, how are they going to deal with fintech? Um, what should they be looking at in terms of smart cities? Um, can, you know, again, a common question these days is, can you please explain blockchain to right. us? We're going to get so this. I, I, what, what changed? You know what I mean? Like, for the longest time, like you said, there was audit, there was tax, there were things like that. And, you know, KPMG, along with some of its peers, um, were very well known for that. And yet, like you said, over the last few years, the bit flipped, right? Something changed. What would, did you see? Did you see like a gradual change in your clients or did you kind of just wake up one day and they said, hey, look, this, uh, this e-commerce thing is happening and I feel like it's going to impact everything that we do, particularly with the rise of Alibaba and JD and Tencent and all these big companies in not just in China, but in the rest of the world. How did that discussion sort of start? What's the genesis there? I, Michael, I, I think that's a good, good question. I, I, I see a couple of trends I, I see that we you know we still deal with a lot of traditional clients sure that are working on a very traditional uh, platform uh, but equally we have this new economy today that has moved radically um, and they're operating um, across this new platform and I think what's happened is that people have woken up to the fact that you know somebody's moved my cheese where's my business <laughs> what a great reference and, you know, I, I think that is a, a, a I think that's a, a huge challenge for a lot of companies, Michael, today. And the fact that um, I see, quite frankly, a number of those traditional older uh, family businesses that are floundering. You know, they are struggling to make ends meet um, and they have perhaps woken up a little bit too late uh, to realize that there is a whole new um, platform uh, new shared economy, new collaborative economy, whatever you want to call it. But there are a lot of these businesses now and they are impacting, you know, those traditional businesses. And we're equally seeing some interesting new businesses um, that are emerging. I, you know, we were just talking about, um, I was actually with a, a couple of people and we were talking about the impact of supply chains and the impact of drones. Now that that's, interesting and it's very in its own right because you know like if you go back three or four years ago drones were not on the tip of your tongue were not they? really um and the fact is that i think last year three million uh consumable drones were shipped uh and a large number of them uh were of course shipped from the likes of south china and we're seeing some interesting players and you talked about bat as the you know the interesting China tech players, and of course for everybody out there, that's Baidu, Alibaba, right, 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 and Tencent. And Tencent yeah. However, you are seeing players like DJI. All know, right, I was just going to say DJI is the drone business, and there's this there's a real secular change taking place in I don't know what else to call it, but in like air flight and in just sort of airborne businesses. Right? Do you do you see a lot of that? I mean, I didn't even expect to talk about drones in particular, but the drone business is something that's fascinating to me, right? Because it's silently operated. It could replace helicopters. You see them, 
sort of investing in them and testing them in, in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates as well. Do you see that stuff happening in Hong Kong and China as well? It, absolutely. And, and what I was going to say to you is that I think out of those three million con- consumable drones that were shipped last year, if I'm not mistaken, it was probably around 65 to 70 percent of them that were shipped by the likes of DJI. Yeah, I think so. Huge number. But but what is interesting, of course, Michael, is that we're now seeing that it's not just the consumer drones and the tech nerdy enthusiasts, perhaps like you and I, right. but it's, it's more about the commercial drones now. And I think that's where it gets interesting because some of the big logistics uh, companies uh, around the world are now looking at well, where do we go? You know, do we have um, all of the, you know, do we look at setting up these distribution centers um, and, and are they all going to be serviced by drones? And interestingly enough, JD.com, Michael, I think um, came out and talked about their vision and their plans where they're going to have 200,000 uh, points of distribution across mainland China to reach to those consumers, not in the tier one cities, but in those lower tier cities, right. the tier five and tier six cities, and those rural areas, right. and that's where it gets interesting because suddenly you are opening up, uh, quite frankly, a new generation of consumers, and perhaps consumers that you did not necessarily reach out to uh, previously. But it opens up new opportunities. It opens up new doors. Um, the other thing, whilst we're just talking about. Um, of course, this part of the world in Asia, um, of course, the 300-pound gorilla in the room is is China. Right. And, and we should remember equally that there's a huge appetite there, Michael. And, you know, we've been doing a lot of um, research at KPMG uh, talking about the millennials. Now, I think you and I are just out of that millennial age group. <laughs> I am for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. But the reality is that those millennial numbers are very, very significant. And in places like China, and and again, if we look at some of the research, you know, in in China and India, there are somewhere in the region of 850 plus million Million. millennials. And if you look at ASEAN, if you look at the rest of Asia, it represents nearly 58% of the millennial population on our planet. So again, let's do the maths. Let's have a look at this. The reality is that Asia is going to be a major consumer base for years to come. And when you've got that number of millennials who are all generally tech savvy right. uh, and and you know also uh, quite demanding, if you like, in terms of consumption, um, we see um, a very, very significant um, potential. And I think, again, um, talking about China as well, Michael, you know, if you look at um, travel, if you look at the mainland Chinese traveling overseas, um, I think last year there were a number of reports saying there were going to be there were around 122 million overseas trips by mainland Chinese. Hmm. That number, again, is going to multiply. Um, there's various statistics and there's lots of statistics out there. But the, again, the reality is that we're looking at 200 million overseas trips by mainland Chinese in the next couple of years. Right. That is a significant number. So again, just the number of not just Chinese, but Asian 
millennials that are going to be traveling is very, very significant. And these consumers, I think we have to say, is that they're not affected by legacy systems. No, zero. Uh, like that's, so this is, this is one of the things that I want to ask you about as well, right? So you mentioned earlier you know, e-commerce as sort of a secular change in the way shopping and retail takes place is interesting to me in cities, but more interesting to me actually in what I'll call like outlying regions. And one of the reasons why is because inside a city you already have access to product. But outside of a city, you're never going to have access to that product because of the concentration of people that are living there. I just wonder what you're seeing in China. I know what I see in, in Southeast Asia, but I'm wondering what you're seeing in China, particularly as it comes to drones and the regulation of them to do air flight and to also make delivery. What's the view of the Chinese government and the Chinese regulatory authorities on flying products to people's residences? Well, I, I think if you look at the Chinese five-year plans, and they're, they're always very uh, well-planned, yep, yep. You know, they really do talk about technology and innovation being key drivers. Uh, I think President Xi Jinping um, has really talked at length about how, you know, China um, is going to be a major force, uh, you know, the, the Made in China 2025. Uh, but equally, when you look around, um, you you do see um, really, you know, a growing level of technology and innovation. Uh, another area which we can look at. Uh, Tell me. Payments. Let's have a look at Please the whole do. area of fintech and where we've come from. If you go to a tier one city today in China, Michael, you don't need cash anymore. <laughs> and I think it's quite amusing because um, here in Hong Kong, we, we're still, I think, living in the 19th century um, <laughs> where we, we still use cash. Um, yet, you know, if I go to Shanghai and I land at Pudong International Airport, I can simply use my WeChat to ensure that I pay the taxi driver using my mobile app. <laughs> I can get to a restaurant and order my favorite dim sum or dumplings, and I pay by my mobile app. So again, I think the reality is that uh, China has had that ability to leapfrog a number of those old legacy systems, and those Chinese consumers um, are really leading the way. Uh, and I think that uh, is very important. Um, I think Pony Ma recently announced that WeChat were now at 1 billion uh, monthly active users. Again, that's a huge number. It's just, um, it's but staggering. it's being written by the Chinese consumers without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, so I wanted to point out to you as well, when I, I was in Shanghai actually in, I'm trying to think, September of last year. It feels much longer ago now. Um, and I was actually at a, um, at a Huawei event as a KOL, but I went in to buy a cup of coffee with cash and there was a woman in front of me who just looked at me dismissively and said, <laughs> she really did. It was such, such a beautiful thing because she looked at me kind of smirking, but kind of dismissively looked at me like I had come directly from, you know, some Western country that was way far behind and said to me, you know, we just do this here. And she just swiped her phone over the thing and walked away with her coffee and watched me sort of struggling with my cash. But I agree with you, and you make a really good point about China, is that they are able to leapfrog in a bunch of different places and ways. 
And it's not just driven by the consumers or the government. It's being driven by industry as well. I'm wondering what other types of things that you're seeing. And I guess you can kind of pick any category. You know, I, I saw some of your recent writings have been on artificial intelligence. I'm wondering where you see the impact of that going forward. Yeah, Michael, good point. I mean, again, I think if you do look at um, areas such as AI machine learning, um, that there is some scary statistics um, that are out there. Tell me. Um, and, and just to kind of quote one from our good friends at the McKinsey Global Institute. So if they get it wrong, it's McKinsey, not KPMG. <laughs> but, but one of the things that McKinsey said earlier this year, which I think um, certainly got a lot of headlines, was that by 2030, um, up to 800 million global workers would be displaced um, from from those those roles uh, that they currently have. Right now, again, that's a huge number, um, and if you think about that, um, it's certainly a wake up call because um, there is a lot of discussions in terms of the flip side. You know, there are positives, but also equally. What are those societal um, negative impacts? Um, and I think that's something that needs to be discussed. Now, my view is is not quite the doomsday scenario. Neither is mine, uh, by and, the way. And, yeah, I mean, yes, perhaps we do need to be a little bit worried. Cognizant but equally, for sure. I think we have to accept that we have to welcome we have to we have to welcome the machine, welcome to this age of the machine, and we have to learn to work with the machine. I think that is something that is so important. Right. And, you know, people do say, wow, you know, look at all of these, you know, AI and, you know, look at all of the, the, the impact of chatbots. Um, and, you know, again, if they can enhance the service, that's excellent. I've just had, I'm going to tell you, a lousy conversation with my bank um, <laughs> on the phone and, you know, perhaps one day they'll wake up and realize that they need to, you know, implement the latest cutting edge chatbots. Um, but I think the reality is that um, equally, uh, China is also woken up to this point. Um, people like Baidu are global leaders in investing in the latest AI machine learning. Um, I believe, you know, there was a, a report that I was reviewing last week, and they talked about 180 billion renminbi that was being pumped into AI machine learning. Whatever the number is, Michael, we know it is pretty damn large. Um, but I think, again, um, AI machine learning can actually help uh, us to get away from some of those mind-numbing uh, regular exercises and hopefully we can move forward and do something a lot more interesting. Um, so I, I do think that equally in, in professional services, uh, we are looking at how we can use the latest AI machine learning. Uh, equally, we have a lot of clients that are really now asking us a lot more about the automated future. Right. And, you know, they want to know about RPA and all of those things around robotic process automation. So, yes, I think it's certainly coming um, in certain industries. They will be impacted. And even in with our, our own industry, I think in areas such as professional services, there are already 
those AI tools out there. There's a, an AI tool called Ross, uh, which is already being implemented by some of those top legal firms from around the world. What does Ross do? And, and Ross is, uh, again, it, it, it is your new digital assistant. Ah, uh, right, yeah. Uh, where you're able to get absolutely every single piece of case history uh, in a matter of, of seconds. Yeah. So, again... There is a lot of, I think there's, a, there's certainly a, a lot of good things there, but we need to be smart about how we are going to be working uh, alongside um, those machines. Right. So I have a view on artificial intelligence and machine learning as well. And I think what it does, if you look historically, and again, I, I, I know that things are moving faster today than they ever have in the past, but that's a... That's the way history works, right? We could have said the same thing during the Industrial Revolution. It's just once machines and electricity and all that stuff was understood, things then moved faster than they had ever in the history of man. But what I do think happens is that automation at every level supports humans that are already doing a great job and the humans that weren't necessarily doing a great job kind of get pushed off to the side, which is bad. But the humans then that would have been doing those jobs We'll find other ways to get employed going forward. I don't think you're just going to have 800 million people that are completely unemployed and walking around uh, looking it, for food. I just don't think that that's going to happen because historically it's never happened. It's always displacement. And I, yes. And we've all felt it. Like, you know, even in the financial services industry, you know, back in 2008 and 2009, there was a whole bunch of displacement that took place. But a lot of those, you know, Kids now that are graduating from university that might have gone into that business have found other businesses. A lot of them are digital and AI and data science and a whole bunch of things that didn't exist before. And I think humans are really good at finding ways to be useful. And if they use technology to make themselves more useful, it, again, creates productivity the same way computers created productivity in the 80s and 90s. I'm, just, I'm much more bullish and positive on humans, even though I do understand that Artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to replace a lot of tasks. But again, a lawyer is a much better lawyer, a much better lawyer if he's not like fumbling through microfiche. Absolutely. And using, and using Ross to, to do data analysis and data mining. Absolutely, Michael. And, and I think whatever happens, we have to accept that we're going to see a rapidly changing landscape across all industry sectors today. I think so. Um, but its relationship with technology absolutely is going to be the key driver. And, and I think that is something that we, we have to accept and we have to move on and, and see how this technology can benefit humankind. So, I, you know, I think that is something we need to have a look at. Um, and, and obviously, um, the other thing I was going to mention here, Michael, is I, I have a lot of my American colleagues who, <laughs> of course, tell me all the time about this amazing u.s technology hmm. and i absolutely concur but at the same time you know there is also a revolution going on in places like china and in, fact, in the rest of asia and we should always remember that for the googles and the facebook's and the yahoo's and everybody else in the western world you know there are chinese equivalents but equally, uh, there are some very significant uh, Chinese tech players. And, you know, we hear a lot about Amazon Go with their new, right. you know, stores using the latest facial recognition. Yet 
equally in China. They are going about their business, and there are also equally uh, those technologies. And uh, as you can well imagine, Mr. Jack Ma and the team at Alibaba are not standing still. You know, they are equally working on some very cool facial recognition. They're equally, of course, looking at how they can uh, generate um, new, better experiences with the stores of the future, for example. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the things that, that that's really new is that, you know, Shenzhen or Shenzhen, which yes, is, you so know, that- Shenzhen is a town, you know, that in the 1970s, I've said this a bunch of times, was 30,000 people. It's now 25 million people. It does about 80% of the world's electronics have some piece of equipment that's manufactured or, or, or designed in Shenzhen. And this is a really interesting thing because this is new, right? Even in the old days, the supply chain was more spread out. It's less spread out now. And hardware and software integration is becoming very important, at least in my mind. And what it means is that, you know, again, just because of scale, scope, and size, um, China has an, a slight advantage here because for every 10 people in the United States that are working on a problem, there are 1,000 people in China that could work on that problem. And you're seeing a lot of, because the government has a five-year plan, and because that five-year plan is actually sensible at some level, the focus on machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, sophisticated manufacturing, and leveraging companies like you know, Foxconn into manufacturing some of the most sophisticated devices, DJI is another great example of this, their ability to, instead of copy, right, which ended like five or ten years ago, and innovate on top of all that base is now really becoming powerful. No? Yeah, Michael, you, absolutely. And, and I, I think this is the, you know, this is what we're seeing now, is, is this kind of evolution where uh, going back a, a decade or more ago, you know, there was a lot of discussion about copycats. Right. Um, there right. was a lot of discussion about infringements on IPR and, and the such like. Right. But, but the reality today is that, you know, you have, whether we like it in, in the West or not, you know, there is the emergence of outstanding technology companies in places like China um, that are really cutting edge. Yeah. And, and they also equally now have uh, very, very significant numbers, um, you know, of um, IP and and they equally um, have, you know, they, they've got a lot better uh, because they have this amazing, uh, you know, ready base of consumers who happen to be tech savvy and really demanding. Uh, and so they have this customer base um, and they're able to trial a lot of these new yeah. products. I mean, you make a really good you make a really good point, right? So in the old days, like in the 1970s and 1980s, when the rise of industrial Japan was really strengthening, you know, they still only had a market of 100 and something million people. And it was a much more sort of export oriented economy. China actually has the benefit of, like you said, a domestic market that's growing really fast into which they can test products. Xiaomi is a really good example of this, by the way, as you know. And, you know, they're innovating not just on the technology side, but also on the business model side, right? So how, not only how do I create a product, but how do I create a business around that product? And particularly with the Chinese government, and you tell me where I'm missing my numbers here, you know, attempting to or committing to bringing 400 million people out of poverty over the next 10 or so years, you're talking about a staggeringly large domestic market into which they can sell product, which means that 
you know, tariffs that affect the West may not have such a big impact on China, per se. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, as I said, you know, what we've what we've seen today is that China is a huge consumer market in its own right, right? We we don't need American consumers anymore, ladies and gentlemen, Uh, we've got over that we have, Uh, we have got a ready made um, new Asian consumer or Chinese consumer. And, and I think that's the reality today. It's, it's a huge marketplace. So you hear a lot about today, it's about China for China. And, and when you're manufacturing in China, the focus is on those Chinese consumers. It's not just an export marketplace anymore. Um, so I do think we, you know, we've already seen the likes of Huawei. And right. I was in the UK, um, you know, last uh, just in fact last week and i walked in to a vodafone shop uh, one of those those telecom shops <laughs> and of course the sales uh, team um were really talking about the amazing huawei product um and so these new smartphones um have amazing functionality um and you know today um You know, it's not just about having an Apple iPhone, uh, but it's also important about um, having, you know, some of these other products that are available. And quite frankly, they have got greater functionality and perhaps at a lower price point. So I think that the reality is that we, you know, uh, we now are seeing these, you know, key Chinese players um, who are, if you like, coming of age. You know, they are starting to really focus on marketing their products overseas as well um, and they happen to be uh, good quality with great functionality and you know I happen to be talking to one of the technical sales guys in the store last week um, and you know he was definitely a Huawei convert you know he he waxed lyrically uh, on about if my father was to choose a new phone it should be a Huawei. Um, so again, I, I, I think it's interesting if you see uh, what has changed, but equally the quality um, of these products. And the fact is, if you want to talk about mobile today, I'm sorry, you don't go and talk about it in the US because the center is here in China, for example. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things. And Michael, I just want to go back to Please. what just talking about Shenzhen. You know, Shenzhen used to be one of those very sleepy fishing villages yes. next to Hong Kong. Yes. And yet I today, you know, today, if you look at Shenzhen, you know, it is a major, major player. Uh, and, and of course, we heard a lot about how Silicon Valley was formerly known as the world's center for digital innovation. Right. But I have to say to you that that perception is changing. And there's huge investment today in places like Shenzhen. I think Shenzhen has gone through a renaissance in terms of, yes, it used to manufacture, um, you know, lots of cheap knickknacks. And it it really manufactured uh, perhaps low-end stuff. Today, Shenzhen is leading the charge in terms of manufacturing high-value products, whether that be at a smartphone 
an IoT consumable, um, a Fitbit, you know, whatever you, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and in terms of sensory devices as well, um, it is leading the charge. If you look at the accelerators today um, that are across China, you will see some of the top accelerators and co-working spaces uh, equally in Shenzhen, where you know the speed to market is so important. And today you have rapid prototyping factories. You actually have factories and manufacturing facilities that are all about doing that rapid prototyping. So again. What I would say is that um, we've seen some very significant changes. Shenzhen is now racing ahead of Hong Kong, um, and you know it, it is a major, um, you know, it really is a major technology and innovation hub. It is, and and you also brought up another company that's of great interest to me, and that's Huawei, right? So founded in 1987, again back when Shenzhen was a sleepy small town. It, it's almost kind of like a proxy for what's happened there because Shenzhen is like the reverse um, integration of Apple. You mentioned Apple earlier as well, right? So if Apple designs hardware and makes the software that sits on it, Shenzhen builds the back end for every telco or a lot of the telcos in the world, right? So they run all the switching and then they build phones that are highly optimized because they make their own chips too that are highly optimized to run on that. And the only thing they're missing is software. So they use Android to run on their, I don't even want to call it a phone, but on their mobile devices. But the more and more that they build their own devices to connect to their own backend because they make the switching, the more integrated they become as well. And while the rest of the world is looking at Samsung, they're missing, I think, a story that's happening with Huawei which is typical of the way the Western world works, right? Remember, Samsung, 20% of the South Korean economy as a domestic market is very small, but Huawei has the entire Chinese market to continue to test and iterate those products on their own backbone and then send it out to the rest of Europe and Eastern Europe where they dominate in the equipment side as well. So again, a very powerful integrated combination that I think the world is going to wake up to over the next few years and just wonder when that happened. Whereas someone like you who sits in a catbird seat there in Hong Kong and has been watching it for the past 20 something years sees this happening much more obviously. Yeah. Yeah. No, Michael, w w without a doubt. And as I said, we, I go back to the point about the speed yeah. of how these things happen and change. It's pretty amazing. Um, it, it is quite amazing. And equally, you know, you, you have got, um, I would say, a number of visionaries uh, across China. You know, Jack Ma, we can't go <laughs> without, in a conversation like we're having today around technology innovation, without talking um, about, you know, Jack's philosophy, what, what you know, what, what his thought process is. Because right. I remember listening to Jack um, some time ago where, you know, he was talking about how e-commerce is not a business model it's actually a lifestyle wow and you know again you see the fact is that you know those chinese consumers spend a lot more time on their mobile devices than their western counterparts um they really do live and breathe um you know the, the use of, of of those devices um and you know I, I think equally um jack talked about the fact that in asia you know, we're moving from the IT time to the DT time, which is the data time. And, and I think, again, um, it, you know, that data is the new gold almost. And, 
you know, the big challenge, I think, for a lot of companies, Michael, is what do they do with all, all the data? And right. I think, you know, one of the questions that I get asked commonly uh, is, well, you know, we've just, you know, we've amassed this amazing data. And, and some companies have these massive data lakes, and yet they haven't worked out what they're going to do with that data. How right. are they going to slice it and dice it? How can they turn that data into actionable intelligence? Because I think that's what's missing today. Uh, but equally, you have got people like Jack Ma and those visionaries. And and, and there were people like, you know, uh, Mickey Mickey Migatani, right. who's the chairman at, 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 at Arakaten. Yeah. At, at Arakaten, if you think about it, again, you know, I met up with Mickey uh, last year because we were at a big conference in Berlin. Um, but Mickey also talked a lot about data. And he said, once you have that data, you can do so much with that data. And, and I think, again, what we've got here in Asia is we have got visionaries and, and leading entrepreneurs um, that, you know, see the big picture and, you know, they're really driving um what we yeah what what needs to be done and they're able to slice and dice that data i think uh in uh, in a much better way so i i think again perhaps uh, for a lot of our um traditional um clients and the big corporates uh, there is a need to change the mindset yeah. and and equally we need to be thinking perhaps a little bit more like a maybe we need to have that startup mentality i think so uh, and and that you know we need to be more agile and we need to understand about the speed of our clients and how they change and we need to ensure that we're tracking um what they're doing so i'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit about change and perspective actually you mentioned that you were recently back in the uk you went into one of the vodafone shops right which i think is always an interesting place to go because it's kind of the epicenter of new technology but it's the connection point between that new technology and just real consumers and I want to connect that to your decision 26 years ago to leave and go to Asia. And I'm just wondering, did people back then think you were a little bit insane for doing that? And if they did, how has their perspective changed now when you come back and tell them, I'm visiting here from Hong Kong or I'm visiting here from China in the context of, you know, they're looking at a Huawei phone. Like, how do all those things come together? <laughs> well, that's that's a great way of, of, of looking at this. Uh, and I have to say that obviously I, I had the last laugh, Michael. For sure. So I, did I, by the way. But but I want to get your you, perspective. But I, I think you're right. I think perhaps um, we, in some cases, um, there are businesses, even countries that are living in bygone days. You know, they are still living hmm. on past glories. Yeah, fair enough. And, and, and the reality is that guess what? Um, the world's moved on, it's business over. has moved on. Yeah, it has. Um, as I said to you, if you look at some of these statistics, if you look at China, I backpacked in China back in 1989 as a student, and I can tell you it was a hell of a lot different um, traveling on some of those old antiquated trains. Yeah, did you ever Did you ever go into a hard sleeper in 1989? I did, I did, um, and a plank of wood. 
yeah. on a hard sleeper. That's, I why, mean, that's why I asked, because I did the same thing. I think you did, yeah, probably we all did the same thing. We've all got those <laughs> stories. Uh, stories. We've all got the wounds um, <laughs> from from those um, old journeys. But I, I think th- the point there is, if I look at where China has come in the last 25 years, right. uh, again, a technical phrase, it's come a hell of a long way. Um, and, and I think that's the important thing. You and I have lived, you know, we've lived it. We've been here. Um, we were on those hard sleepers. Uh, and yet now I'm able to go on those super high speed trains, uh, land, you know, I can land in Hongqiao in Shanghai. Um, you know, so, so again, I look back um, through a different lens, if you like, in terms of realizing, um, hey, China, um, whether you love them or hate them, you have to take your hat off to, to them because they have really come a long, long way. Um, you know, if I go back to my student days and traveling across mainland China, it was painful. Um, and I learned a lot about patience. I'm sure you did as well, Michael. I did. But today, if you look at the China today, they, they're, they're aspiring to be something. Um, the, those young millennial consumers are very aspirational. Um, they have a dream. Maybe it's a, a, the American dream. But the reality is that today, um, you know, we do live in a fast changing world and, and there has been a paradigm shift um, to the East. And if you look today at places like um, China, um, and you can still see the old and the new. Um, and, you know, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. But equally, um, you know, that there is this, this amazing, insatiable appetite um, for everything new and shiny. And as I said, the, the, the consumers today are incredibly tech savvy. Uh, they know the brands. In fact, they know the brands better than you do. Um, and so, again, um, I would have to say that we need to wake up in the West. What's we your realize what, that, what, what's your view on Alibaba's? So Alibaba a couple of years ago invested, let's call it $500 million into a business in Southeast Asia called Lazada. And then they invested another billion and then they put another billion in. That's at least according to what and I always say the newspapers because I'm of that age. But what do you make of this move outside of China now in a way that's very like powerful into Southeast Asia? What is that telling you? What is it signaling? Well, again, I, I think Lazada is a Southeast, you know, Southeast Asia play anyway. Um, and, you know, I, I think, again, um, it's about, quite frankly, it's about learning to work with your millennial consumers, not just in China, right. but across Asia. I think so, too. Um, and I think um, it was, I believe, it was probably a very wise move, because if you look at the future of those physical retail stores... I'm not saying they're doomed, but I am saying that they're going to have to change very, very significantly. And I think last year, if you want to talk about the U.S. market, just the U.S. market alone, I think over six and a half thousand retail outlets closed down uh, literally last year. That's a huge number. And if you go to the high streets across the U.K., for example, um, there are a lot of closures uh, and there continue to be more closures. And I looked at the BBC online 
course, that the fake news outlets, as you well know, Michael. <laughs> but but I, you know, I looked at the BBC online today, and there was more gloom and despair on the high street with those retail players. So the reality is that, again, going back to my earlier po- point about the fact that people are now uh, waking up to the fact that someone has moved my cheese. Um, business has moved. Um, where's it moved to? Um, how can I engage with those consumers? Do I really, really understand um, those consumers? And these are all questions that we're being asked. You know, we have a team that's very focused on customer experience. Right. That's um, what I was going to say. That, that's, you know, again, that's, 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 a, that's a hot topic today, Michael. Yeah. So that's the big change. And I, I was talking to some startup founders this morning, right? And the big conversation we were talking about was, like you said, retail and how e-commerce and the the digitalization of everything is affecting e-commerce, but also retail. And one of the things we talked about was what you just said, and that's the user experience. In other words, a physical shop becomes a hybrid of a place where you can buy something, but also a place where you can experience something. And that's new, right? Whereas in the old days, a store or a physical store was just a place where stuff sat on racks or on shelves and you could check out there. But now it's a place where you go and experience things. Sony tried this way back in the 90s and didn't do it so well. Apple kind of started it. But now it's moving into even companies in the United States like Warby Parker building experience stores where they don't care if you shop at all, actually, as long as you then go online and buy something. Absolutely, Michael. And I think that's where we're moving to as well. Um, and we see that as well. You know, there are a number of e-commerce players here in the region um, that they realize that it's also about the customer experience. Yep. Uh, and again, if, if, if we're frank about it, look at Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods. Yep, same thing. You know, that was the same idea. They needed to have a physical presence because they have to drive customer experience to a whole new level. And that's the reason why Alibaba have been investing in those physical stores as well. So I think what, what we're, we are seeing now is we are seeing, you know, the marketplace changing. Uh, my view is that it's, it's going to be driven by uh, three consumer, probably three key consumer drivers, you know, which are you've got to ensure there is the convenience. Um, you have got to ensure, uh, again, that it, it is an experience and there's value. Now, if the smart players link that up with the data, Uh, then perhaps you have a winning formula. Uh, But this is not uh, business as usual anymore, Michael. If you stay the same, you're dead. If you don't change, uh, you're dead. Yeah. That's that's the business imperative, right? That that really is, um, you know, we are staring down the barrel of a gun, as we say. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of, um, you know, there are a lot of things um, that we are going to see change. Um, and I have to say, just going back to all of our friends in, in terms of the startup community um, and those young entrepreneurs, and, and not just young entrepreneurs, there's a lot of uh, more mature entrepreneurs that I see here in Asia. Right. But I think today we've got to ask ourselves as, as big traditional companies in terms of, you know, how are you going to compete um, with the next generation of these young, tech-savvy agile startups and again um i think a lot of people have not been able to answer that right look i think you i think you said it best and that is this is not business as usual and i think that's actually the best way to end 
hopefully the first conversation and not the last conversation that you and I are going to have together. But I think this has really been, I mean, gosh, you have so much information at your fingertips and so much experience behind that. Michael, information. absolutely. And I hope that you'll answer my calls next time. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. But, yeah, but, but joking, joking apart, it, it's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed our conversation. I, I'm pretty sure we could go on for hours. Yeah. Um, but, but really just, I think for everybody out there, you know, my advice to them is, Please. you know, you've got to you've got to be of the mindset in terms of welcome to the machine because, you know, the machine is here. Um, equally, um, you've got to make sure that you make your interaction with the customers easy because, again, I think that's really important. And as I touched on earlier on, the you know, that whole speed to market uh, is actually very, very crucial. Uh, nowadays and and equally michael you, you know for a lot of companies i think there's a realization that you can't do everything by yourself today yeah so you have to ensure that you do have these strategic alliances and strategic partnerships because you absolutely need to be agile or, or more agile uh, than you are and without a shadow of a doubt you you really do need to put the the customer first um and you've got to focus on those experiences. And last but not least, um, please, please, please um, take a different view. You know, look at, you know, look at things perhaps differently uh, through a different lens. Um, and above all, do it now. Act now before it's too late. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Anson. I really appreciate your time. Michael, I appreciate your time. Really a pleasure to talk to you. Um, literally, I think 59 minutes has flown by <laughs> at a, a great pace. Um, the one thing, just a little story I, I did want to um, tell me <laughs> tell you about. No, tell me, tell me. I caught up with the Maserati team. Um, and in fact, we hosted um, a luxury symposium at the end of last year. Wow. Um, and um, here in Hong Kong uh, with our good friends at the French Chamber. And uh, we had the GM of, um, of Maserati, um, a very cool Italian dude, uh, Amory, who was telling us um, that, that even Maserati had been working on developing these virtual reality showrooms where you could go in and check out um, the latest sports models um, and... What was amazing is they decided they'd have a, uh, you know, they'd do a, a special promotion on Singles Day, eleven eleven for everybody out there. Right. Um, just on on Singles Day, twenty five point three billion dollars U.S. dollars on one day on one platform. Right. But what was remarkable is I remember a few years ago when people were, you know, scoffing at the idea of us selling fashion online. They said that that would never happen. Right. Uh, and yet. Here we had Maserati, who decided they were going to do a promotion online on Singles Day on that one day, and they decided they'd have 100 Maserati sports cars. They sold those 100 sports cars in, wait for it, 18 seconds. Yeah, I was going to say. So again, the power of the consumers today, um, again, wow. the power of e-commerce, the power of online, um, is quite remarkable. Um, and I think that's, you know, that, that's a great story, but it's also equally a word of warning for all of us. 
in the fact that if we don't change, um, business is going to change well, anyway, without a doubt. <laughs>